0: Welcome to this evening's Spencer Trask uh, Lecture. Um, Let me read you the citation that uh, endows this lecture series. Uh, Founded in 1891, with a gift of $10,000 from Spencer Trask of the class of 1866 and supplemented by an additional $10,000 from his estate for the purpose of securing the services of eminent men to deliver public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. Um, with the exception of the reference to gender this is the exact type of vague bequeath that the university loves Um, Princeton has taken advantage of this to have a very wide range of very notable speakers in this series including uh, Niels Bohr, Arnold Toynbee, T.S. Eliot, Bertrand Russell, and uh, showing an admirable admirable suppleness of interpretation Margaret Mead. Um, Our speaker tonight is Edward Witten. Dr. Witten is not only uh, one of the leading theoretical physicists of his generation, he's someone who seems to spin off whole fields uh, whenever he turns his attention to uh, individual problems. Um, He is most noted for superstring theory, uh, where his leadership has made Princeton a mecca for young theorists from all over the world, Uh, reversing what might be considered the usual flow his physical insight has uh, led to the development of new mathematics, and this to such an extent that he was awarded the Fields Medal in Mathematics in 1990. Dr. Whitten received his BA from Brandeis, I believe in neither physics nor mathematics, if I'm correct, um, his PhD from Princeton. He was a junior fellow at Harvard and a professor at Princeton until 1987, when he moved down the street to the Institute for Advanced Study. He's currently on leave at Caltech, and we are delighted to have him back in Princeton uh, to lecture on the quest for unification. We welcome Edward Witten. Good evening,
1: and
2: thanks for the introduction. Can you hear on the balcony? Yes. So. Uh, Physics is concerned with the exploration of all kinds of phenomena, from the motion of fluids, for example, uh, the properties of different forms of matter, electricity, magnetism, and light, gravity, and many other aspects of what we observe about nature are all part of what is studied in physics. And throughout the history of modern physics, since Newton's day, physicists have aimed to form wider and more general theories that would apply to more things with broader applicability, giving more complete and satisfactory explanations. Now, this process advanced greatly in the 20th century, where our understanding of nature was largely distilled down to two great theories, which I'll tell you a little bit about. There are general relativity and quantum field theory. I would imagine you've all heard of relativity, but many of you might be hazy about what the adjective general has to do with it. Well, it's the most complete form of Einstein's relativity, and it involves gravitation in a form I'll explain in a second. In the second theory, um, many of you have at least heard of the notion of the quantum, but probably only the physicists have really encountered the more precise version, quantum field theory. General relativity, the most complete form of relativity, is Einstein's theory according to which gravity results from the curvature of space-time by mass and energy. So there's, it's very difficult to envisage curved space-time without the mathematics of four-dimensional manifolds. But there's a rough analogy for this that conveys some of the idea which is often presented. Well, here I've drawn a picture which suggests a two-dimensional surface being bent downward by a mass. But you might imagine the surface as being the surface of a trampoline. Somebody's dropped a mass onto this trampoline, it's bent down. I've probably exaggerated how much a real trampoline would bend. I'm actually approaching the limit of a black hole if we pursue the analogy with general relativity. And now you can see that an object moving on the surface of this trampoline will follow some kind of an orbit that will go around the mass. It will really be a curved orbit, but that's just because of the way the trampoline is bent. So in some sense, this particle, this little billiard, this little um, golf ball, um, or this little ball rolling on the surface of the trampoline is following the most natural or straightest path, which is possible given that the trampoline itself has been curved by the presence of a mass. This is roughly the way Einstein presented gravity. The sun, for example, was a mass. Instead of the trampoline, it was space itself that was bent by the presence of the sun. And the Earth or any of the planets and bodies in the solar system were following the most natural paths in a curved world. So this, at least very schematically, is general relativity. And general relativity is applied with great success to stars, galaxies, and the universe as a whole. Sometimes in the newspaper or in the science magazine, you'll even see a photograph of a gravitational lens, for example, where you see several distant images of a distant galaxy. So to sketch it briefly, here's the eye or a telescope. Here's the distant galaxy. Somewhere here is a mass that is somehow bending down that trampoline. And because of the presence of a mass, there are several best paths for light to follow to your eye. So you see not just one image, but several images of the distant galaxy. So not only is general relativity applied to large scale objects like galaxies or the universe as a whole, but you can literally see it take a picture where you see some of Einstein's basic ideas at work and producing multiple images of one galaxy. So it's applied to stars, galaxies, to the universe as a whole, to the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe, anything which is really big, or to a star collapsing to a black hole. Those are all situations where general relativity is crucial. But as physicists were interested in lots of other things, like atoms, molecules, electrons, and subatomic particles, And we'd like to see how general relativity works at the atomic level. But unfortunately, the effects of general relativity are unmeasurably small for individual atoms or elementary particles. The reason for this is that although an individual atom will make a little dimple in space, it's much too small to be noticeable. While a whole star or a galaxy will be like a big weight weighing down on the trampoline, and will bend it in a noticeable fashion. Now, general relativity makes the large-scale behavior of matter very strange. This curved space, the Big Bang, expansion of the universe, black holes, are all very peculiar things. So the large-scale world is very strange because of general relativity and its effects we don't see for individual atoms or molecules. The micro-world, the world of the atoms and molecules, is also a very strange place, but in very different ways. It's just as strange in its own way as the world of general relativity, the cosmic world, but it's completely different. Now, uh, again, I have to give a very uh, schematic explanation of how the micro-world is different, but one that you can more or less visualize is that uh, classically we think of an object as having a definite position and velocity. So, NASA tracks a spacecraft heading for Mars, and for all practical purposes, you feel that although you don't measure precisely where the spacecraft is and how fast it's moving, you feel that if you were more and more accurate with your measuring apparatus. You could know with as much accuracy as you wanted where it was and where it was going. But quantum mechanics says that no matter how accurate you are with your measurements, there is an inherent limit in how accurately you can measure the position and velocity of a particle. So I've tried to uh, sketch this here. I've made a little sketch where time runs vertically and space runs horizontally. And a classical particle would follow a definite path in space. So at each time, it would be somewhere. And in principle, you could know exactly where it was at a given time. Although in practice, there would always be some limit to how well you could measure that. But in quantum mechanics, instead, everything is fuzzy, there is an inherent quantum limitation, the uncertainty principle. What I'm describing is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. There is an inherent fuzziness in everything. And so for the spacecraft heading for Mars, this uncertainty is so much less than the actual experimental uncertainty, but we don't notice it. But in the subatomic world, the quantum uncertainty is big. So everything, we can never draw this clear-cut path of a classical particle. Everything is fuzzy in a way that you can't really understand without the mathematical formalism. But I've tried to sketch it informally by replacing a nice smooth green line by this fuzzy thing. So somehow, the microscopic world is inherently fuzzy because there are limits on the accuracy of the measurements that one is accustomed to contemplating as a pre-quantum physicist. Now, in the micro-world, as I've already said, the effects of general relativity aren't very important. And general relativity is Einstein's greatest creation. But his earlier theory, special relativity, which was the special case, the first case, not the most general case, is very important in the micro-world. Special relativity is Einstein's theory, in which space and time are flat. There's no gravity. You don't have to understand the mathematics of curved space-time. But nevertheless, funny things happen. Moving rods get shorter. Moving clocks slow down. Um, Nothing can travel faster than light because a rocket that tries to accelerate faster than light uses more and more more fuel with less and less change in its velocity. And so on and so forth. So there's Einstein's theory, which is peculiar in its own right, but not as far-reaching as his theory that incorporates gravity. And this one is important in the micro world. So very crudely, and of course I'm being very schematic today, much of the sort of mid-20th century, and in fact, up till the development of the standard model of particle physics as late as the 70s, had to do with combining quantum uncertainty with special relativity, Einstein's first theory. And by combining them together, one constructs the theory which prevails in the microworld to the extent that we understand the micro-world today. And the theory that we use today to describe the micro-world as well as we can is the second great theory of the 20th century, which is quantum field theory. So it describes an extremely strange world. One aspect of the strangeness is the quantum fuzziness that I've already described. And the other part that involves relativity is antimatter. So quantum field theory describes a world in which if you pump in enough matter, if you pump in enough energy, excuse me, one of the basic facts of life is that particles have antiparticles. Particles and antiparticles can get created and annihilated all the time. Now, um, the fact that there are so many of you here tonight shows that uh, well, many people, even if you don't work in physics professionally, are very curious about physics. But in that context, there's something which I think is a little bit odd, which is that, well, everyone's heard of relativity, although maybe not the refinement of general relativity. And likewise, if you have some interest in physics, you've at least heard about the quantum. But something which isn't really explained very much in popular articles or books about science is that the hard part of the quantum is really this quantum field theory or you have to worry about the matter, the antimatter, and the quantum behavior of light. So that's really, in my opinion at least, by far the toughest of the physics theories of the 20th century. Surely a graduate student who wants to get up to date on all of the snazziest theories that we have would inevitably spend the greatest part of his or her time learning quantum field theory. It's our most complete framework for understanding the micro world And uh, nevertheless, it's not described very much in popular articles and books on physics, which is a gap I really can't fill tonight. I can't do much better than to describe it as the combination of quantum uncertainty with relativity, where out comes strange things like antimatter. But to summarize what I've said so far, our contemporary understanding of physics is based largely on these two theories, general relativity, or Einstein's theory of gravity, and quantum field theory, which is the theory of basically atoms, molecules, and subatomic particles. They're both very peculiar theories, but one of the most peculiar things about them is that they are in conflict with each other. If you try to combine these theories by trying to calculate what would be the general relativistic corrections to the energy levels of an atom, for example, you run into contradictions. These contradictions are very hard to probe experimentally, which is an extremely frustrating state of affairs. If we could really do experiments that would directly probe the contradiction, we could probably learn much more, much faster. But we do know that these two theories are part of nature, and the fact that they are in contradiction, in conflict, shows that something basic is missing in the way we understand nature today. Now, the problem comes from uh, a very old piece of physics that you probably remember from high school, which is Newton's assertion that the force between two masses, a distance R apart, is proportional to one over the square of the distance. In fact, I was asked if there would be any equations tonight. And this, if you regard it as an equation, is the only one, I think. Maybe this thing down here. So Newton's force tells us that, Newton's law tells us that the force is very small if the bodies are far apart. But it would become very big if the distance was very small If two bodies are very close together, then according to Newton's force law, the force is extremely big. And now, subatomic particles are exactly the things where the distance is practically zero. And here we're in trouble. In quantum mechanics, the distance from an electron to the nucleus actually is sometimes zero. The electron can be right on top of the nucleus or inside it. So in in, in subatomic physics, we have to worry about this Well, in astronomy, we really don't. For example, Newton studied the moon going around the Earth or the Earth going around the sun and never had to worry about the fact that the inverse square law is so bad when the distance is very small because the moon always kept at a safe distance. But elementary particles are not so well-behaved, and the 1 over r squared singularity causes general relativity not to work as a quantum theory. So this is a fact which actually was first perceived in the 1930s. But in the 1930s, the quantum theory was so poorly understood that there was felt to be a possibility that this would go away simply when quantum theory was better understood. For a half century after that, the understanding of quantum theory was perfected, and the quantum field theories were developed and compared, began to be compared with experiment and were understood much better. And it became more and more clear that this conflict wasn't going, to wa- wasn't going to go away all by itself. Well, where is this problem really important? If you're not a professional physicist, would you care about it? One place it's important is an understanding of the Big Bang. And the reason for that is that in galaxies today, quantum mechanics isn't important. And in atoms, general relativity isn't important. But in the Big Bang, they're both important. Well, general relativity because the universe is expanding fast and quantum mechanics because the temperature is so high. So to make sense really of the Big Bang, you would have to come to grips with how quantum mechanics and gravity are supposed to work together. And an example of a question you might ask with no special professional background interest in physics, if you're told about the Big Bang, the universe is expanding and it seems to have begun from an explosion as nearly as we can tell. It raises questions that probably puzzle everyone almost at some time or other. What could be meant by talking about the beginning of time? Well, from the point of view of physics, theoretical physics of today, although I can't offer an answer, the question is really one that combines quantum mechanics and general relativity because they were both important near anything you might characterize as the beginning. And I believe most theoretical physicists ever since DeWitt and Wheeler in these 60s would guess that the answer has something to do with applying quantum uncertainty to the concept of time. So the Big Bang is one arena where this problem is important, and another arena where its important has to do with the fate of a black hole, which according to Stephen Hawking, probably his greatest discovery in physics, emits radiation at a quantum level and ultimately evaporates. But you can't really make sense of understanding the fate of a black hole without understanding how quantum mechanics and gravity work together. So those are two reasons this problem is important. But the one that, to me, is most pressing is that I think it's the best clue we have to understand what's still missing in the theories of physics that we have today. They're best theories, and they don't work together. They're in contradiction. They're fantastically successful, each in their own region. But when you try to make them work together, you run into a mess. It doesn't make any sense. But since they describe aspects of the same natural world, one or both of them is in need of being modified to reconcile them. And if we could learn how to do this, we might put our understanding of nature on a new level. Physicists have faced such contradictions between established theories in the past. And experience shows that clues of this kind, when established theories contradict each other, when you try to apply them together, should be taken seriously. Many of the great discoveries in the 20th century had to do with such contradictions. For example, Einstein's first theory, Special Relativity, was really invented because Einstein perceived more clearly than anybody else at the time that there was a clash between Newton's laws of motion and Maxwell's theory of electricity, magnetism, and light. One or both had to give, and Einstein had the vision to recognize, that it was actually Newton's theory that had to be modified. He kept Maxwell's theory exactly like it was. And having done so, Einstein further observed that Newton's laws of gravity, even after he had disposed of Newton's laws of motion, Newton's laws of gravity didn't didn't then agree with special relativity. So again, one of them had to be modified. I think in this case, I would say they were both modified to result in general relativity. So then, soon after discovering the electron and the atomic nucleus, roughly 100 years ago, it became clear that on the best theories of the day, the electron should spiral into the atomic nucleus in much less than a billionth of a second. So that was in sharp contradiction with what was observed since atoms lasted much longer than a billionth of a second. And trying to make sense out of that led to quantum mechanics. But by the time quantum mechanics was there, special relativity had been invented. And to combine those theories forced the invention of quantum field theory, which, as I told you before, is the refinement of quantum mechanics that predicts antimatter, and which graduate students in theoretical physics spend a lot of their time struggling to understand, and which, regrettably, doesn't tend to attract the attention of of popular science writers, so you don't tend to read about it. But it's still our main theory of the subatomic world. And then going on and even closer to the present, well, the electroweak part of the standard model of particle physics uh, was invented because of analogous contradictions in the theory of beta decay, and so on and so forth. So in the last century, many such problems were solved, always leading to theories of wider applicability learning how to fix one or both of the previously established theories that disagreed with each other. But there's one big such contradiction, which remains the one I've already told you about, between general relativity and quantum mechanics. So we've got to combine general relativity and quantum mechanics, but how? Well, lots of clever people made direct assaults on this problem in the last half century, or more even, where by direct assault, I mean that you sit in your office hoping inspiration will strike and you will realize how general relativity or quantum mechanics, or maybe both, according to taste, should be modified so that they can work together. But at least in my opinion, direct assault by people who are consciously working on this problem and hope to make progress with it has yielded little. Where progress did come from was a lucky happenstance, uh, where starting in the late 60s, physicists stumbled upon a new theory that actually looks like it does the job. And when I say they stumbled on it by happenstance, they were really trying to do something else. They were trying to understand the behavior of the uh, nuclear forces, or if you wish, the strongly interacting particles. And that was ultimately a problem that was solved in a different way with the discovery of asymptotic freedom and the uh, the other part of the standard model of particle physics, as it's called now. So they were trying to do something, but what they were trying to do wasn't to understand quantum gravity. But as it happened, they stumbled upon an amazing trail of theoretical discoveries. By the way, I can comment on this objectively, because I have nothing to do with it whatsoever, having entered the field later. So physicists, beginning in the late 60s and early 70s, stumbled upon an amazing trail of discoveries where a theory that was invented for one reason and didn't actually solve that problem, nevertheless had such a rich mathematical structure that some physicists at least believed it must be good for something and kept tinkering with it and they stumbled onto what was never achieved by direct assault. They stumbled onto a modification of quantum field theory that, first of all, makes sense. Even that has never been achieved by direct assault. In other words, OK, forget general relativity. We've got quantum field theory, and you want to do better. So you want to invent a the theory that has general relativity, that has quantum field theory, as an approximation, but is different and makes sense. At least should make sense. So quantum field theory is so rigid that, except for what I'm telling you about, In my opinion, at least, no significant modification of it that makes any sense has ever been proposed. But this modification of quantum field theory not only made sense, but it made gravity not just possible but inevitable. So theoretical physicists stumbled originally in the late 60s and early 70s onto this trail that led to a modification of quantum field theory. You see, quantum field theory, to state this in a cartoon version, Quantum field theory makes gravity impossible. And the modified theory that was stumbled onto without having any conception of what they were doing to begin with made gravity inevitable rather than impossible. So uh, it took a long time before physicists believed this. The theory really went into eclipse and was revived in the late 70s by John Schwartz, Michael Green, and just a handful of others who who felt that somehow this appearance of gravity in this theory should be taken seriously. So what is this modification of quantum field theory that makes gravity uh, impossible, uh, inevitable rather than impossible? I can tell you one thing which is for sure, which is I can't explain it because I didn't tell you what general relativity was nor what quantum field theory was. So I can't, I surely can't tell you how to modify them or either one of them so that they can work together consistently. But I can say something naive in the same sense I said a few words about the other theories. So the most naive way to say this, which gave the theory its name, is that to the extent that you ordinarily think of an electron as a point particle, uh, you change your point of view and think of the electron as a vibrating loop of strength. I'm drawing it as a closed loop, but there are variants where it would be an open loop. Looking like this. So that's a simple picture to draw, so simple that it doesn't sound like it, um, doesn't sound like the genesis of a big thing. And in fact, it wasn't. Hundreds of papers were written on what was originally called the dual resonance model of strong interactions before anyone in the early 70s extracted from it this picture. Now, there are a lot of things left out of this picture, and one of them is quantum mechanics. So it really was a, car- it's a cartoon version to say that without string theory, the electron is a point. Without string theory, the electron is what we call a point-like object, but what that means is it obeys the Dirac equation and the laws of quantum mechanics as interpreted with quantum field theory with electron, positron, pair, creation, and annihilation, and so on matter and antimatter, and all those funny things that I didn't really tell you about very much. So in the same sense that we can boil the ordinary electron down to a point, uh, in string theory, that point is extended into a loop of string. I'd be slightly more realistic at the cost of making the picture harder to see. If I said that the point was affected by quantum fuzziness, so it looked more like that, well, that was meant to symbolize a solution of the Dirac equation. And in a similar sense, the string is fuzzy. But a picture doesn't really convey justice to that. So I'll draw a few more pictures without trying to incorporate the quantum fuzziness. Here, I've got a picture of particles or strings moving in space-time. So again, as before, space is horizontal and time is vertical and, I've drawn the particle, forgetting the lessons of quantum mechanics, as if it traces out a definite orbit in space. So at each time, it's at some definite point in space, and later on it's somewhere else, and it traces out a curve in space. Well in a similar sense, the similar picture for a string would say that at each time we have a loop of string which is somewhere At a later time, it's somewhere else. Later on, it's here. And as time evolves, the string traces out a tube in space, which is actually called the world cheat, although world tube would have been just as good. This one is called a world line. Now... The reason I've drawn these pictures, of course I've drawn them without quantum fuzziness because here it would really get hopeless to see that one. But these pictures will enable us, will enable me to give a hint at least of one of the important things about the theory. I told you that gravity didn't work with quantum mechanics because there was a 1 over r-squared force of Newton which became very strong when r is very small. And that ultimately leads to trouble. I'm going to at least draw some pictures to convey the hint of how string theory avoids this problem. And although the pictures will be oversimplified, I think they do convey a large part of the truth, at least as well as such pictures usually can. So first I need to tell you a little bit more about particle interactions. So one of the most important methods to calculate particle interactions in quantum field theory is by what are called Feynman graphs, one of Richard Feynman's most famous contributions. So again, I've drawn a Feynman graph in space-time. Space is horizontal, and time is vertical. And the Feynman graph conveys a history, it represents a history of particles that are propagating in space-time. And they're allowed to branch and rejoin at certain moments in space and time. I've drawn their orbits as, space line, as straight lines, although Feynman would allow any old curve path. And I've left out quant- I've done that simply to make the picture easier to see. And likewise, I've not tried to depict the quantum fuzziness. The important thing in this picture, two particles came in from the past, and two particles go out to the future. In between, there were some events in space-time, which I've labeled as X, Y, Z, and W, where one particle coming in broke into two, or where two recombined into one. So that happens at moments X, Y, Z, and W in space-time, and Feynman taught us that X, Y, Z, and W can be anywhere. And where we run into trouble is where X, Y, Z, and W all coincide in space time. So that trouble is the analog. It's the analog of the one over R problem. We have the one over R squared at R equals zero. R was the distance between two particles. So the relativistic version of R being zero is that all these events in space-time coincide. And that causes trouble. How is the trouble averted in string theory? This is what no one was clever enough to think of by direct assault. And this is a simply blundered into it by accident, starting from something else. So here's my stringy picture. And now here I've drawn a similar diagram. Here's my Feynman diagram, conventional one for ordinary particles. Here I've drawn a Feynman diagram for strings. To do so, wherever you see a line, we replace it by a tube. Because while an ordinary particle traces out a curve in space, a line, a string traces out a tube. While a particle breaking into two does so at a discrete moment, a tube branching into two tubes can do so smoothly, which I've depicted here. One tube came in, two go out. But you can't say exactly when and where it happens. One uh, observer may think that... One observer who thinks that this is a surface of constant time might think that an event occurred here but another observer who has a different idea of what time is, and here I'm using Einstein's relativity of time, would have a different point of view about it. There's no... In this picture, looks like any other, so there's no analog of the special moments in space-time whose coincidence which causes the trouble. In this picture, no matter how small a dotted line I draw around an interaction event, it's just different from a dotted line that doesn't contain an interaction event. X, Y, Z, and W are special events in space-time where something happens. In the string picture, if you look at any little bit, it looks like any other little bit. So you can never say exactly when and where the interaction occurred. And therefore, there's no analog of the notion that there's trouble when all the interactions occurred simultaneously. So this is, at least schematically, why string theory doesn't have trouble with the 1 over R squared force. But why is gravity, in its modern form of Einstein's general relativity, forced upon us? I really can't explain this, but I can at least give you a hint of why the string theory framework does have some predictive power that's not present in the ordinary quantum field theory framework, in the pre-string framework. For this, we're going to go back to a piece of the Feynman graph. So here, I just draw one particle breaking into two on the left, and on the right, I've got one string breaking into two. Now, one of the main things that makes quantum field theory complicated and limits its predictive power, I've drawn it as if one was always breaking into two, but we can have more complicated events. For example, down here, which meet and recombine into three. In general relativity, all kinds of funny things like that can happen. So in conventional physics, you need special rules about which of these processes are allowed and at what rates they occur. I've also simplified the story by not labeling lines, but we should worry now that each line represents an electron, a muon, a neutrino, or any of the other subatomic particles. So our instructions about which events can occur and at what rates they occur, depends on how the lines are labeled. In string theory, you get all these particles out of one string in different forms of vibration. And you don't have any of these special events because any small piece of a string history or string worksheet looks like any other. If you look closely at this little bit, it just looks like this little bit of a where interactions occurred. So I wish I could make this motto recognizable, but I think I can't tonight at least. But if you know what a string is, you also know what it does. And that's because to know what it does, you need to understand one string breaking into two and so on. But if you know what it is, that means you understand the free string propagating on its lonesome. That means you already make sense of a little piece of the picture. You glue together the little bits that you understand individually. You make this picture. And you can actually deduce what the string does once you know what it is. But that's not like pre-string physics. You could assume nature has electrons, muons, photons, and quarks, and so on. But to know how they interact, you still need the Feynman rules, the instructions about these special events. So that's the reason that string theory has some predictive power that's absent in the standard framework. And as a result, there are very few string theories. And when they were investigated, because there are very few, they might all have some properties in common. When they were investigated in the 70s and 80s, it turned out that they all predict general relativity. Except that the word predict isn't quite right, because Einstein was there first. Let's give credit where it's due. So this is perhaps better described as a postdiction. diction. This was an insight that came after the fact, a theoretical framework in which general relativity was inevitable. So if this framework is correct, it accounts for why gravity is described as Einstein did describe it. But it wasn't really a prediction. It was a post diction. So I still think it was uh, one of the most remarkable insights in science ever. And as I told you before, I speak about it with complete objectivity, having arrived after the fact. But but it is a post-diction, and it would be more fun, even more fun, to have a prediction. So, can we likewise extract a prediction from the fact that there are only a few string theories? Well, actually, as a bonus, the string theories also predicted something new, which was needed to make, to make the string theory work. And that's a remarkable new dimension in the world of elementary particles called supersymmetry. So there are two questions I should answer about supersymmetry, but I can, well, for different reasons I can't answer either question tonight. One question is, what is supersymmetry? And the second question is, is it true? <laughs> well, I can't answer what it is for the familiar reasons I can very crudely say that supersymmetry is a new dimension of space and time, but it's a new quantum dimension. We're accustomed to measuring space and time by numbers. It's now 3 o'clock. We're 400 meters above sea level, and so on. We're measuring space and time by numbers. And that was built into Einstein's theories of relativity, which predated quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics introduces things other than numbers, like matrices and fermionic variables and so on. And supersymmetry introduces into the structure of space and time a new dimension that's inherently quantum mechanical. It can't be described by numbers. It introduces this at the level of special relativity. So supersymmetry is a modification of Einstein's special relativity. So I said a few words, but as promised, I didn't really tell you about what it was. I just talked about it a little bit. Now, I also observed that I can't tell you either whether it's true. And that's because There are hints that it's true. For example, the uh, strong weak and electromagnetic couplings as measured at accelerators obey a relationship for supersymmetric grand unification. Well, we don't know if it <laughs> really is true. The way to really know would be to find new elementary particles that would arise from vibrations of the familiar particles in the new quantum dimension. Those new particles, for example, would be a new kind of cousin of the electron. Dirac already taught us 70 years ago with quantum field theory that the electron had a cousin, namely the positron of opposite charge, but the same mass. Supersymmetry predicts that yet another cousin of the electron has a different spin. The electron and positron had the same spin. So we hope to know which particles exist by the end of the decade. Most likely, perhaps from Fermilab near Chicago, but otherwise, from the large hadron collider or LHC. The LHC is the European analog of the super collider that, regrettably, the U.S. is not building. It's under construction at the European laboratory CERN near Geneva, and it should be operational around 2006. It'll have around uh, seven or eight times the energy of existing accelerators, although, by the way, only one-third the energy the SSC would have had. But if the hints we now have about supersymmetry are authentic and are not just uh, unfortunate accidents, then there's a reasonable ground to hope that that factor of 7 or 8 will bring these supersymmetric particles within reach. Well, I remarked already that there weren't very many string theories, and that was related to the fact that they have certain predictions in common, or more precisely, a post diction, which was gravity, and a prediction, which was supersymmetry. To be more precise, how many string theories are there? Well, as they were counted in 1984, when the, their construction was completed with the invention of the heterotic string here in Princeton, there were five. And I can at least schematically indicate how they differ. They differ by very general properties of the strings. In two of them, type 2i and type 2b, the strings are closed loops, which are oriented. That means there's a preferred direction along the string, which I've shown by this arrow. And they are insulators; they don't conduct electricity. In the heterotic, in the two heterotic theories, those strings are closed and again oriented. But now they're superconductors. They're very funny superconductors that only carry current in one direction. The type two string had a preferred direction, but it was hard to explain intuitively what that does. But for the heterotic string, I can tell you more easily: they are one-way superconductors that carry current only in one direction. And finally. The first. There's type 1, where the strings are open and closed and are unoriented. And the open, one, like one parent, the, the open ones, the ones that have ends, have electric charges at their ends. So, having only five string theories is a big improvement over standard quantum field theory, where there are infinitely many plausible theories. But there are infinitely many quantum field theories, but at least luckily we've got a lot of experiments, so we know some of them that are actually relevant to the real world of elementary particles. But on the logical plane, there are infinitely many other quantum field theories, and we don't know why they're wrong. For some reason, nature has this particular batch of quarks, leptons, quarks, muons, neutrinos, and so on, and it could have had a different batch with a different quantum field Anyway, there are infinitely many quantum field theories, and there only are five string theories. That's at some level, clearly, but it's still four theories too many. We don't need all five of them. And that raises the question. If one of these theories is our universe, who lives in the other four worlds? <laughs> now, there well, are lots of really deep questions in the field that haven't been answered. But this one actually was answered in the 90s. And the answer, I can draw a picture, although I can't, of course, explain it fully. But the picture is the five string theories are different classically, and they're also different if you can consider quantum mechanical effects to be infinitesimal. But if you understand them better, when the quantum mechanical effects might be big, it turns out that they're all the same theory. They're different limiting cases of the same theory. The picture that emerged in the 90s is that there's one richer theory, often called M theory, where M stands for magic, mystery, or matrix, according to taste. And this one theory can be approximated in different limits by the previously known string theories. So, for example, a graduate student studying type one superstrings by traditional methods was studying them, assuming that the quantum effects were small. So here in the universe, where quantum effects could be considered small. And the traditional question view, if asked what happens when the quantum effects were big, was that that was out of reach. In the 90s, string theorists developed some methods to extrapolate to a region where the quantum effects were big, and it was learned that big quantum effects could be equivalent to one of the other string theories. Now, in drawing this picture, I've written two parameters, so it's not just quantum mechanics, as well as Planck's constant h-bar, which characterizes the basic concepts of quantum mechanics. There's an analogous stringy constant alpha prime, which, if string theory is correct, is just as important in nature as Planck's constant and leads to equally surprising effects. And to oversimplify a bit, the two dimensions in my plot are these two parameters, h-bar and alpha prime. But they get mixed up. Uh, a graduate student studying the gate- 8 times 8 hydraulic string interprets as Planck's constant a certain kind <laughs> from what's understood as Planck's constant by somebody studying type 1. And similarly for the other string periods. Now, quant- the whole idea of quantum mechanics is getting mixed into this soup in a new way that we don't understand very well yet but at least it's become clear that something like that is happening. We understand lots of things we can calculate, but we don't understand really the ideas behind it. But whatever it is, Planck's constant, h-bar, the whole concept of quantum mechanics, is getting mixed into a much bigger picture in a way that we didn't have before the 90s. In my opinion, it's the beginning of a new uh, understanding of quantum mechanics. Well, what's missing? All kinds of stuff are missing, really. Uh, I think that uh, eventually... Of course, I can't guarantee that string theory is on the right track, but if that proves to be the case, I feel sure that people will eventually look back at the spring of 2001 and say that almost everything was missing. One thing which is missing is that we're nowhere near understanding the theory well enough to make precise predictions about elementary particle physics. We can extract some big things like general relativity and supersymmetry in a precise way. And in an interesting but less precise way, we can extract some other things which are still pretty big, although smaller than these, like the quantum numbers of the quarks and leptons. But we're nowhere close to understanding it well enough to predict the mass of the muon, for example, or the mixing angles of the quarks, or of the neutrinos and the quarks. So, I mean, there are all kinds of dimensions to what's missing, and I'm going to boil it down to two for brevity. One thing which is missing is that even with that ability to extrapolate into some aspects of the strong quantum regime, and therefore to, to discover this beautiful picture that I've fetched here, even with these methods, we're still nowhere close to being able to predict the details of the elementary particle world. We have some big predictions that are extracted in a comparatively firm way, and we have some somewhat smaller predictions, which are extracted in an interesting way. And the details are way out of reach. Perhaps on a loftier plane, we don't understand what the theory is based on. As I told you at the beginning, it wasn't invented by a physicist who, uh, emulating Andrew Wiles, emulating perhaps in advance, Andrew Wiles' approach to Fermat's last theorem, cloistered himself for seven years and came up with the brilliant insight about how to modify gravity or quantum mechanics or both. Such a physicist presumably would have known what he or she was doing and would have understood the ideas that the new theory is based on. But instead, this has been studied for uh, a third of a century by now by a process of tutoring, But we don't understand what's behind it. We just gradually work back from the pieces that we can see a little bit closer to the fundamentals, but with still a long way to go. The theory fell from the sky 30-odd years ago. And after nearly a century of hard work, we've gotten to the point, uh, we've distilled the quest for superunification of the laws of nature to one theory that I think is remarkably rich, but that we still are very So stay tuned, but I would not recommend holding your breath.
1: Heisenberg says that you can't know exactly where a particle is. Why is there a problem with the inverse square law if you can't essentially know that r equals zero? Okay. That's an excellent question. Uh, that, uh, maybe you should, go sorry. That's an excellent- this uh, was-
2: <laughs> okay. The question was. Um, if, the, if quantum uncertainty makes everything fuzzy, why are we still having problems with gravity? First of all, if the question has ever been suggested to you before and you just dreamed it up, perhaps you should go into physics. I won't be able to properly answer, but once upon a time, there were problems for both forces, electricity and gravity. So as I mentioned, the electron was going to spiral into the nucleus in much less than a billionth of a second, and that was cured by the quantum fuzziness. So the Heisenberg principle was really invented, more or less, to solve this problem of the inverse square law for gravity, for for electricity. Of course, there were lots of other ingredients, but that was one of the hints that led to it. Now, the the gravitational case is superficially similar, but Einstein's mathematics in general relativity is highly nonlinear, and the details don't quite work. It it takes a detailed explanation. So your idea was right. Quantum fuzziness does solve a superficially similar problem for electricity, but in detail, it doesn't for gravity. I assume every string theory uh, talk gets asked this but strings of what uh, um, well um, if string theory is right then until such a time as it's improved upon your answer wouldn't have a, your question wouldn't have an answer because in string theory they're just strings you can't say what they're strings of they're the things in which you describe the theory uh, I could tell you what kind of equations're obeyed but that would be the only kind of answer I could give. If you asked me what the electron was made out of, I called it a point before, but then I said it was really a point-like object that obeyed the Dirac equation that you had to interpret in the sense of quantum field theory. So um, I can describe what the electron is, but to say what it's made out of in the standard theory, all I can really do is tell you the equations it obeys. So what's usually regarded as saying what something is made out of is a more fundamental theory that generates whatever you've been studying. So the question is, what the question, what are strings made of, would only be answered if string theory is improved upon. So in a sense, it first has to be right, and then it can be improved upon. Yes, uh,
0: professor. Um, as I understand it, there are a number of additional dimensions that are required
2: to um, make sure that the spring theory really works. Mm-hmm. Would you spend a moment and discuss why they are necessary? Uh, well, it's very hard to say why they're necessary. So um, one of the weird things discovered in the early 70s was that to make supersymmetric string theory work, you essentially need 10 based on dimensions. The four ordinary ones and six more, which looked weird at first, But in time, physicists learn that you can use them to provide an arena to unify the ordinary elementary particle forces. That's a story I would probably have explained in giving a talk like this one 15 years ago. But today I gave a different emphasis. But it's very hard to explain the details of the theory that lead to that prediction. If you work out the quantization of a relativistic string, you find it only works under very restrictive conditions that lead to the five-string theories. And they require those extra dimensions. Back there?
0: Do the five different string theories that you mentioned, uh, they have different the strings have different properties, does that lead to different predictive results in terms of how the strings act in the universe?
2: Uh, They definitely lead to different predictions, Um, but, uh, well, for example, when I said that general relativity comes out of string theory, what I really meant is that it gives relativistic forces that look just like general relativity at astronomical distances where general relativity is observed. They all predict tiny deviations from general relativity, deviations that are unmeasurably small, and the details of those deviations are different for the five string theories. Uh, well, this gentleman in the middle.
0: So, in your uh, in your picture for M theory, you had uh, you had six vertices. In your in your picture, but you only had described or had mentioned uh, five string theories. So what's the other what's the other well, corner uh, about? Uh,
2: that's a good question. Again, so um, there was a theory, eleven uh, dimensional supergravity, that um, was a really intriguing theory, a very rich mathematical structure, not as extensive as string theory, but still too rich to be a complete accident. Well, you know, some of our colleagues uh, were convinced there must be a good reason it existed. And uh, most string theorists, including me, were skeptical. But it turned out that when this duality diagram that I've sketched up here was completed, was figured out, that uh, even though it doesn't quite have the power and predictive power of the five string theories, there's a sixth limiting theory that enters the picture. It's 11-dimensional supergravity. So... There's a piece of the puzzle that isn't a string theory but is still important. So I put it on the picture even though I hadn't really had time to explain it. Uh, in the back in the back over there? Okay, So the question that was asked was um, why replace a point particle by a string? Why not use a membrane, a drum, or something like that? So um, there's a technical answer, which I would have given you in 1985, which is that when you quantize a relativistic string, it works and drums don't. And sorry about that. And presumably when... uh, Sorry to give an analogy that might be a little too technical, but uh, when Cauchy came to the French Academy talking about complex numbers, probably some people asked him why he combined two real numbers and not three or four. But that's just the way it is. But it turned out that that answer isn't the whole story. Um, You can describe the theory systematically with strings, but it turns out that it actually does also describe membranes, drums, and so on, called brains, technically, which are important in understanding the workings of the theory. And in building up that duality picture, Uh, in building up that picture, it's important to understand that the um, theory contains these brains, drums, and so on, which in a sense are um, just as important, although not as useful, as the strings. You can calculate more with strings, but the other ones are just as important. Yes? Uh, so you said it was embarrassing
0: that we had five theories
2: instead of one. But uh, is it now more embarrassing, because we have infinite number of theories of uh, What's being, par- being parameterized? OK. The question was, do we not now have infinitely many theories, because nature could be living anywhere in this two-dimensional space, which, in fact, I've oversimplified in projecting it into two dimensions? Well. Uh, Those are all different physical configurations in one theory. They differ by the expectation values of fields in the technical language. So it's different solutions of the same equations that describe any of those points. So when one says one has different theories, it usually means that the equations are different. Here, uh, there's one system of equations which humans don't understand too well, and it has different solutions. So when I said that we're nowhere close to understanding the world of elementary particles, to oversimplify it a little bit, what I meant was that we're nowhere close to being able to describe a realistic solution of these equations that would describe the real world with all its details. Even forget all the details. I'm not even talking about details like stars, planets, and people. I just mean details like electrons, muons, and neutrinos.
0: Um, if you were, uh, I, well, if, what, uh, what did,
2: sorry, uh, what branches of mathematics would uh, you recommend um, to uh, hypothetical undergraduate to uh,
0: study to uh, make sense of this uh,
2: and, Well, uh, uh, entirely apart from answering your question about math, you'd certainly better learn a lot of physics especially all the quantum mechanics and quantum field theory you can muster, as well as general relativity. As far as math is concerned, um, well, you know, a lot of bits and pieces of geometry, algebra, and topology come in in different ways. And it's very hard to tell you what to learn that would be useful in the future. No doubt... um, If this theory had been invented by someone who had indeed locked himself in the room for seven years and figured out what it was, then upon emerging, this individual might have been able to point you to the correct corner of the math shelves. But as it is, we're only discovering the theory by bits and pieces. And so it's very hard to give you a succinct and useful answer. It's it's the opposite. Remember, general relativity was invented by somebody who did cloister himself for years, Einstein took the problem of reconciling gravity with special activity much more seriously than almost anybody else did at the time. And by the time he invented the theory, he knew exactly what it was, and he he understood the right mathematics, which was Riemannian geometry of curved spaces. So this theory has got a completely different history, and even now, nobody understands what it really is in that sense.
0: With some disciplines like, um, like you've explained quantum mechanics, there have been definite applications of it, such as you know NMR and all that stuff. What do you see as the major, any kind of applications of this seemingly esoteric theory that no one can understand? Uh, well, you're right. So quantum mechanics has
2: all kinds of applications, and instead general relativity doesn't. A general relativity is applied just barely in the global positioning system, but that's really cracking a nut with a sledgehammer. It didn't need all that trouble on Einstein's part when a little phenomenological fit to the gravitational redshift would have worked just as well. So to a very good approximation, general relativity enhanced our understanding of physics and the, of science, nature, and the universe, but it wasn't useful. It was Einstein's greatest creation. It's surely what scientists know him for primarily. But it's definitely not known for being useful. So uh, string theory, as far as we can see, continues this glorious tradition. I'm only a generalist, but um, I think of the traditional concept of form, and it feels like, to me, we've had uh, particles and things that we could describe as having some form so we could tell them apart, and now we've managed to find some kind of language with which to describe that which has no form, and therefore everything always looks the same because it doesn't have any form. Is that a fair characterization or not? Uh, Well, I won't sign on to that. Because, for example, in studying the subatomic world, physicists do definite experiments, for example, with electrons and proton beams or whatever they're using, and they get results. Certain interactions occur at certain rates. So you observe definite things. It's not like it's just equivalent to anything else that might have happened. And then in these rather esoteric 20th century theories, which are surprising compared to our ordinary intuition, but there are structures which are just as definite as they are surprising. I may have emphasized the surprise today more than the equations, because the latter might have been less effective. But these theories have definite mathematical structures just as much as they have surprising features that are unintuitive. You do definite calculations and definite theories, and if it works, you understand what happens when the electron collides with the proton. Turn to the notion of dimensionality uh, even to begin to understand this I uh, would have to know what uh, what kind of frame it's on uh, uh, if we have a set of coordinates uh, or, or, or uh, dimensions uh, dimension, uh, there are lots of perversions of the word dimension but uh, uh, are all the dimensions like each other in the sense
0: that for example they would go together to make a, a line element or a distance
2: well to, again to oversimplify slightly because I'll ignore supersymmetry All the dimensions are treated the same way by the basic equations. But the solutions of the equations cause some dimensions to be the dimensions we see in everyday life, like up, down, left, right, and so on, and others to have different characteristics. Well, the question was basically how does one try to make progress in this theory? And in any branch of science, the hardest thing to do is to find a good question that's actually uh, hard enough that it's interesting to solve but easy enough that you might actually solve it. So that being the hard hard part of doing science, it's very difficult to tell you how to do it. (laughs) One would not only give away whatever professional secrets there are, but it would make science sound easier than it is if I claimed there was a recipe for doing that. You, you just hunt around and try to find something that you can do that's interesting enough to try to figure out. I, I'm describing life as a on the theoretical side of things, obviously. Yeah. Well, we hope, the question is why we haven't yet seen super particles. I guess it's because uh, Congress didn't agree to build the SSC. <laughs> Hopefully the LHC will have a high enough energy. Uh, I doubt that the workshops are exclusively on string theory. I imagine that the workshops are on contemporary physics, including the standard model of particle physics, and also how physicists try to go beyond it. I very much doubt that anybody presents a workshop assuming that all the uh, general relativity, standard model of particle physics, and so on are under the belt, and it's a question of talking about speculative theories. question was how can a string conduct electricity well I'm afraid the answer would have to consist of telling you about the equations governing the hydraulic string and then we would see that it's a superconductor well let's close up with one question uh, back here the follow up maybe to the first one how long are they Well, the second part was, does the Heisenberger principle apply to strings? And the answer is yes, since it applies to everything. And the first part was, how big are strings? So strings come in all sizes. they are equations they obey. And you can certainly have big ones by pumping in more energy. So there's no, there's no biggest string. But there is a question of what's the smallest string, because there's a sense in which quantum uncertainty uh, does give a smallest possible size to a string. I do recommend theoretical physics.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe.
0: At the risk of disappointing some of you who are hungry, one of the newspapers alas reported a reception that is actually not planned so if you read that uh, you'll have to go out and find some food sorry